Welcome to the Artelligence Podcast. I'm Marion Manneker, and we're going to explore the mysteries of the global art market. Fine art storage might not seem like a scintillating subject, but it's central to the way the art market functions. Simon Hornby is the president of Crozier Fine Art, one of the leading institutions here in New York, has recently been bought by Iron Mountain and is embarking on a plan to expand. The art storage business has suddenly taken on a fair bit of significance uh, in the world. One, it seems like uh, everyone talks about how they get their work stored and shipped and loaned. Uh, and two, there seems to be quite a bit of activity. You were recently, about a year or so ago, acquired by Iron Mountain, the um, storage firm, and you've then made a couple of acquisitions yourself. Could you start with a description of, of Crozier, uh, maybe even a little bit of its history, but also you know, with these acquisitions, how big the company is and what kind of facilities it has? Well, going back to the beginning of the Crozier story, Bob Crozier started the company uh, about 40 years ago. Um, he was one of the first to recognize that art transport and art services and art storage would really require discrete um, property and real estate and a separate approach from many of the other companies that were in New York at that time, which were really uh, household removals companies who ended up handling art. So Bob has um, been a leader in terms of what that looks like, both in this market and his influence on the industry as a whole for all of those intervening years. He was the first to really to stand up and set out a set of parameters for best practices for art storage and art handling and continues to have a very active role in that today. So I think it's fair to say that Crozier has really been a brand leader within the art storage and art services market in New York for many years and is also a brand known in Europe and, and Asia um, simply because of the type of clients that we deal with, whether it be artists, artist studios, the auction houses, dealers, galleries, um, everybody in between. So I think one of the other differentiators that Bob developed and something that we maintain to this day is that the vast majority of employees of Crozier Fine Arts have an art background, whether it's in ceramics or photography or painting or sculpture. Um, that is something that we still see today, that probably 90% of the employees here, myself excluded, um, are practicing artists and have a deep love and um, what I would say is a real investment in, in the world of art. And I think that's something that does set, a, set the company apart from many others. Fifty years ago, uh, artists were all uh, museum guards and uh, hanging out with each other during the day in MoMA's uh, galleries. <laughs> I guess uh, uh, 50 years from now, people will be telling stories about uh, working here at Crozier together. Exactly. And we're already seeing a change. I mean, New York is not a cheap place to, to stay. And there, is a, there has been a subtle change in, in that employment market. You're absolutely right. Um, we see some artists today that are well known that were at Crozier 20 years ago. And I think it is somewhat rewarding to reflect that Crozier played a part in giving them a toehold in New York City and gave them employment when they needed it. And they've gone on to greater and more glorious things. 
Let me use that as a bridge to talk about the other side of it. You mentioned dealers uh, just a minute ago, and you know, the the image of an art dealer is one of the Wildensteins with some vast vault of their own deep beneath you know the Parisian uh, uh, streets. Uh, you really are the vault for many uh, of the dealers in New York. This is where the work is stored, correct? We have a wide uh, client base. Um, we number a number of dealers and galleries, that's absolutely right, as well as the other segments of the market. And I think one of the things that Bob has always tried to do is to meet the needs of the different parts of the market, whether that's needing your art in Manhattan and therefore having close proximity to the bricks and mortar that are and have been and are the galleries, or being slightly more cost effective and developing art storage in New Jersey, whereby you can reduce the cost of that storage, but at the same time, with a shuttle service, have the artwork available in Manhattan next morning, next afternoon, whatever it may be. So I think over the years, Bob has understood the different drivers for different um, players within the market. And to some extent, that's why we have developed the number of properties that we have to try and meet those different segments. But I would say that galleries and dealers are still one of the more important um, client segments of the client base we have, although their model is changing. And I think to some extent, we're still waiting to see how that evolves over the next two or three years in terms of still the need to have real estate, whether it's in Chelsea or whether it's on the Lower East Side or the Upper East Side or whether we see others moving out to the boroughs. Um, and that competition with the virtual dealer who really doesn't have their own space but rents viewing galleries from us so they can have a presence in Chelsea when they need it, or also the online model. I think that that is still a narrative that is working itself out. And sitting here in the middle of Chelsea, we see different parts of that story. And it's interesting to see that on the corner of 20th Street and 10th Avenue, we see two new galleries are going to be here within the next couple of months. So. Uh, New York, I'm like any other large city, is always changing and the art market is always changing. So the next chapter is being written and one day we'll figure out really what it looks like. It sounds to me that you're hinting there are people making uh, good business out of showing their work in your um, viewing rooms and maintaining their contacts but doing more private dealing than having retail space. Absolutely. And I think whether that was originally driven by the economics of the art market and the price of real estate in New York, or whether it was simply getting ahead of that curve, um, really the, the result is pretty much the same. That we do have a um, significant uh, number of clients who use us for storage and use us for viewings. And in that effect, uh, to some extent, overhead light in terms of how they look at their business model. I think it must give them greater flexibility. And also, as long as we can be as nimble as they need us to be, then everybody seems to be well served by that business model.
Let me follow on the nimble uh, idea. If uh, many more galleries are doing a substantial portion, 40 to 60% of their business at art fairs, and there's a global schedule of art fairs, and they use you as your, their primary storage, um, what's the logistics like of being able to uh, get your um, stock to the various fairs? Does it come in and out of the, these various facilities of your, yours? Do you have partners in Europe, in Asia, to help someone get to Art Basel in Hong Kong, get to Espearte in uh, uh, South America, Zona Maco, which is to, to finishing, place? Yeah, yeah. Well, it's all of the above, Marin. Um, I think anybody who understands the logistics model, particularly in the United States, understands that there are a couple of um, freight forwarders that specialize in the art market. And so our clients and we work in partnership with them. There are other clients that want a slightly more hands-on bespoke service where they would require us to work with a company in Basel, for example, or in Taipei or Hong Kong on a one-on-one -on -one basis. So it's... It's all things towards people to some extent, but I think given the but, cost... But, but I can call you up and say, you know, Simon, I'm doing, uh, you know, this art fair in, in Asia and I need, you know, these things packed and these particular items packed and to basically be at my booth and you'll take care of everything in between? Absolutely. So we play that role, um, whether it's um, transporting to the airport, booking the air freight, having airport supervision both here or at destination, arranging for installation at the booth, um, absolutely. And from time to time, depending on the client, depending on the artist that's being shown, we will actually send our own art handlers to either manage or to actually undertake all of that activity. So in that sense, we are a um, full-service art storage and art service handling company in that we provide that door-to-door, nail-to-nail, whatever your language is, we can do it all. See, I almost see it as the other way around, not so much that you know, retail space or gallery space in a major metropolitan center is so expensive, but if I'm going to be on that circuit, and it obviously requires a lot of logistics and bodies, I'd rather put my money into that, being able to have everything um, you know, make a great impression at the various art fairs, and then if I've got a client who, who wants to buy outside of that, use a facility, rather than to maintain, you know, offices and, and a gallery just yeah. for having an opening. No, I mean, that, that, that's exactly how we look at it as well. And I think one of the things that we're looking to see is how we can help the, the dealer extend, extend that sales cycle. Um, so what do I mean by that? For example, you may engage a new client who you've not met before at one of these art fairs. They may be interested in the artwork, but not quite yet prepared to make that commitment. Is how do you keep that sales momentum in play? Um, does it mean that the artwork should stay in that geographic location? Does it mean you need to move the artwork closer to the potential buyer? Does it mean you need to fly the buyer to where the artwork is? So number of um, straightforward observations and questions, 
and we're working with a couple of clients at the moment to see how we may be part of an evolving mechanism in terms of bringing art, buyer and seller together in not necessarily outside of the art fair, but to complement what's happening at an art fair and extend that level of engagement. And our assumption is that if we can um, help those parties achieve more throughput, then there is value in that for, for all of the parties. Well, that would certainly seem to make sense with, you know, the idea of traveling to New York once a year to see your gallerist and maybe buy an impressionist picture as happened, you know, 50, 60 years ago, ago or, or a, a minimalist uh, a work of yeah, art. Yeah, but then you were, had five days at sea, so it was more of an expedition as well. But, well, uh, and, and it was part of the excuse yeah, and the fun exactly. of do, doing it. And, yeah. and, and, but the art fairs now are, are that same experience, uh, 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 part of the being the the caravan going around the world. But not everyone wants to make the transaction just then, and not everyone wants to buy off of an, uh, an image afterwards. It, it, I'm assuming you can also do the same, the, those kinds of viewings in other major cities. Uh, you know, if, if you've got a client in LA, it's easier to send the work out and go out there than to have them come to New York. Nine times out of 10, that's the case, exactly. And the other, the other component of this is and you know as we have more conversations we learn more that most galleries and dealers have different inventory for different markets so they may say there's my european inventory and really that needs to be in europe from maastricht through to the freeze and then i have my us inventory and that needs to be in miami in december and it needs to move to san francisco or la and and the same for South America and the same for Asia. So what we're really looking at here or what we're talking about is um, much more of a logistical exercise in terms of having the right product in the right place at the right time for the right audience. That, um, that, that's a great way to talk about the um, subject of free ports. Because I know, uh, you know, one of the real values of free ports are for exactly what you just uh, described. If you are a dealer uh, uh, who wants to keep your stock in Europe but doesn't want to have to pay taxes on, on it until it's sold uh, or have the buyer pay the taxes, the free port is the mechanism that allows you to leave it there, move it from fair to fair without having to do the, either the paperwork or pay uh, uh, the uh, duties uh, uh, on it. it, it is the Freeport business growing, or is it still relatively specialized to that and the collectors who are so using it as a, a bank of tangible assets? I think from the research that we have done and we continue to do, that it is growing. But I think it's a misnomer to only talk about the Freeports, given that there are other tax suspension environments in which you can achieve um, pretty much the same thing in terms of bonded warehouses, I know talking with our counterparts in the UK, they believe under their relationship with customs in the UK that they can provide to their clients pretty much the same set of conditions, which is suspending any tax until such time as an event takes place, the artwork is sold or it's shipped somewhere, and then the tax event takes place. So that is one part of it. I think the second part of it is um, certainly, as we see in the US, and we 
um, as you know, have got a storage facility in Delaware, can achieve the same things in Delaware in terms of um, the, the lack of intervention of a tax regime until it moves out of Delaware in terms of there being no sales tax, no state capital gains tax. Um, you're not going to escape federal taxes, obviously. Um, and then if the buyer buys in Delaware, then the tax event takes place wherever they ship it to. So that's another part to it. But in broad terms, I think what we see is that a number of collectors perhaps don't have access to the best advice in terms of how to look at these um, regimes, which may help their cash flow, may help an ability to maintain wealth transfer over time, whether it's from generation to generation or between other parties. And I think that the if you like, the, the poor press that has been experienced over the last two years has really detracted from some of the positives that the free ports and the um, tax suspension regimes can provide under the right circumstances. Uh, uh, look, the, the assumption that free ports and art are being used for money laundering is understandable given some of the, the uh, conditions surrounding it, but there's so little evidence that it's uh, being used that way, more because art is a poor vehicle. Exactly. For, for yeah. not, not because people are more virtuous in the art, art world, it's just too easy to get taken in the art world yeah. if you don't know what you're doing and there's really not enough volume. That's why we see the real estate being used uh, so much for it uh, instead. But, but you're absolutely right, because it was so unfamiliar, it was very easy for everyone to write these stories uh, uh, basically saying there's this place in Geneva that is filled with all of this art. Well, it makes great headlines. No doubt about that. Um, and everybody likes a good plot and thinks they're watching the next movie. But about, it's interesting um, to me that you, you, you say that it, a lot of the same conditions can be met in other structures in other countries right. so that you can achieve your, your client's goals without necessarily having to use a, a so-called free port. For yeah. So I think the question is, given that's the case, why would you want to use one of the free ports? And I think the answer, a couple of reasons for that. Firstly, it's a recognized center. It has a brand. And for a number of people, it gives them confidence that they're not the guinea pig. They're not trying some new system out. It's been there for many years. It's worked well. Um, I think the second part is looking at the legal structures, which then support transactions that may or may not take place in those environments. Um, that's why I think, you know, you look at Delaware, has got a good brand. I think you look at Geneva, it's got a good brand or has had a good brand. And the question is whether an environment like Singapore is as well known and as well respected as others. And I know there are moves to create free ports in Shanghai and maybe some of the other um, larger cities in, in... And in Singapore, I think that they are upgrading uh, the regime there. They're trying to raise their OECD st yep. status, and when you talk to the people involved in the Singapore Freeport, they'll tell you they actually um, bear personal liability for many well, of the things. No, I think that's exactly right. And I think when you look at really what has become a, a global network of wealth managers, wealth advisors um, who are subject to a whole lot of local and national um, regulations. Um, and you look at the raft of 
wrongdoings that can be um, thrown at them, and you'd understand that they really do need to be um, cleaner than clean on all these things. But I think the, the point I would make in this discussion is that it wouldn't take a great deal for the business of art to package what a buyer should rightfully expect in a better way, and that is in terms of provenance, in terms of how the deal is transacted, that there is a component which gives you recourse if indeed the artwork turns out to be um, a fake. I mean, all of these things exist. There are legal requirements for all of them, um, but I think as an industry, we would all do well to see how we can put that together in a way that looks right, you know, passes the smell test to some extent, that everything has been done that can be done and somebody's signing off on it. And, you know, there have been discussions, you know, recently in Geneva about, you know, whether this is a voluntary program or whatever it is. Um, and to some extent, I think I see no reason with voluntary programs, subject to it having some teeth behind it, whether it's an insurance program that supports it, whether it's certification from an outside body, of which there could be a number that would accredit um, an individual or a company or an organization, whether it be an auction house or a dealer, in terms of they're passing all of the tests, they've been verified that they're doing all of these checks they say they are. And I think that would actually help go a long way to taking away some of that stigma which exists but it doesn't exist for the right reasons from my vantage point. How much do you, uh, Crozier, work with those advisors, the wealth managers, more particularly the lawyers? Uh, do you do that directly or really through the client? So uh, you just talked about, you know, if you make an arrangement for a client, they, you tell them, this is what we're going to do, go speak to your lawyer, make sure they, they vet this, or do you sit down with the lawyers or their wealth advisors talk about, here's what we think we can do that will help the client achieve their goals? So I suppose the important thing is that really we have a very passive role in any transactional part of the business. Um, Typically, we don't know values. We often don't know uh, the source of a painting. Um, what we know is who our clients are, and we're very upfront with them about what agreements need to be in place for us to act on their behalf, and who can give us directions to act on their behalf. So from the get-go, we're talking and quite often negotiating language with the attorneys. But our role is then very, um, it's laid out, it's prescribed in what we can do and what we can't do. And one of the things that really we're prohibited from doing is dealing in art. And um, I actually quite enjoy having that as a barrier because one of the old adages that I learned many years ago when I was new to the Lloyd's insurance market was um, that you, a servant can only serve one master. And they said, if you follow that principle through life, you won't have too many problems. And I think that holds good today. Well, well let's just speak uh, specifically about, about that, because uh, obviously um, what you just said brings to mind the situation with Yves Bouvier, both being a uh, owner of a um, storage and shipping firm and 
part owner of the physical free freeports, and then also acting as a go-between, he says dealer, uh, his client says uh, art advisor uh, in what has become a celebrated uh, case. And, and to this point, I still don't think we've heard that any real evidence, though I think it will always do dog him, that he used his um, knowledge as a, uh, a shipper and storage uh, manager or freight forwarder or his part ownership of the uh, free ports to any of his, his particular advantage in making these transactions, though it seems terribly naive to suggest that, that he didn't gain some advantage from all that. But are you saying to me that you are proscribed from doing that by law in the United States or no. just by professional ethics? Um, by ethics to start with, but supported by our role where our clients who own art use it as security for bank loans, so collateralized lending against art collections. So typically that is handled under a tripartite agreement between the owner, the lender, and ourselves as custodians. And within that agreement, we agree that we do not deal in art. And I'm always reassured by that because if anybody wants to step away from that role, I can always point to those agreements and say, we can't do it, and this is what backs it up. So it's initially a moral stance that we would have, but secondly, because of those agreements, it, it does keep us honest in terms of what we've agreed to. And corporately, that's a better business for you than it might be individually. <laughs> you know, to be a custodian and uh, and yeah, do that, that I mean, is a better business than individually someone being uh, making the score of being a, uh, well, a dealer. Well, um, I mean, if I think you have to make some choices in this life, Marion, and one of them is we sit on this side of the fence and not on the other side of the fence. I think there are a lot of opportunities out there to become a dealer if you want to. But I don't think you can do both because it's, it is the perception being reality. And obviously, I know the case that you're referring to. I mean, I think it's highly unlikely that uh, Mr. Bouvier used his role with Natural Accoutre or any of his other investments um, to, to gain that type of market knowledge. I think, you know, for it, we know that other dealers well known in the Chelsea market just have fantastic knowledge of who owns what who is looking to buy what, and that's the world that really makes those deals come together, not what we do. Um, I mean, the argument always been that if we were able to take a percentage of every artwork that we stored, then we probably wouldn't be sitting here today. Um, well, well, well let, let's talk about why you're sitting here to, today. Uh, uh, Iron Mountain is a very large uh, uh, document and now data storage uh, business. It, it seems, uh, I don't know, the, the odd that they would be interested in this uh, uh, very physical uh, world. They bought you about a year, a year and a half ago. Can you sort of give me a December the 1st, 2015, so what's that, 14 months and change going on. And I think actually when you begin to peel back um, the Iron Mountain business model and the proposition that they take to their clients, it has uh, enormous similarities with what Crozier stands for and what it does. And really the first thing is that it's, it's about integrity and storing um, people's property, whether it's um, records management, whether it's data, whether it's something which has a far more identifiable value such as art in terms of 
this is what we do, this is what we stand for, that something you give us today, you will receive back tomorrow in the same, if not better, condition than um, we received it, number one. Number two, some of the principles of chain of custody apply exactly to what we do and how we work as to the records management and, and data management. So there are some principles that both business models follow. And then when you look at Iron Mountain being a REIT of real, real estate investment trust, the ability to add storage, revenue, and um, owned real estate, which is what Crozier had, then that adds to the story that a REIT can take to its investors in terms of um, providing more storage, more diverse storage, that might counter any future trends in a reduction in physical records or other vagaries within the storage systems that exist. I see. So, so it's the persistence of the physicality that correct. makes you as much attractive correct. as the paper records go away. And I, and I think when you look at the art market, as you know, we, we joke and say, there's never any less art in the world on a daily basis. There's only more. You rarely hear somebody say, I've had enough of that artwork. Let's shred it or put it in the dumpster. So one has to assume that going forward, there is um, a continued upside to art storage. It also seems like it's... Um along the same uh, strategic path as MCH buying regional art fairs and using what it knows from its ownership of Art Basel, not to extend Art Basel, but to uh, then uh, buy these other regional fairs and improve them, manage them with that kind of uh, efficiency. Does that suggest that Iron Mountain or maybe Crozier backed by Iron Mountain uh, will look to uh, you know, expand to either other cities in the US or other parts of the world? Well, um, it, it's really um, public record that when Iron Mounted announced the acquisition, um, Bill Meany, the chief executive of Iron Mountain, explained the rationale for it. And very loosely, Iron Mountain determined that art storage and logistics is a $1 billion plus global business. And at the same time, it's a very fragmented business. Um, there are no significant um, international players. There are very few domestic players in each country. And there is therefore the opportunity to look at making acquisitions to drive synergies, um, to reduce some of the costs that are inherent with this type of fragmented um, network of companies. And so we have been set some fairly aggressive targets over the next three to five years to achieve that growth both organically, which is continuing to invest in the business, and secondly, by acquisition. And we've made two small, relatively small acquisitions in the last six months, one in Fairfield County in Connecticut um, of um, storage and services provider there, and more recently, the Circus Brooklyn operation in Williamsburg, which brought to us um, a facility that was in one of the boroughs in which we didn't have a presence, which is always good. Um, more importantly, a client base with um, little crossover with our existing client base. So that has given us some experience of looking at acquisitions, um, looking at the ability to develop um, additional services with a new client base and really how to then take that to a wider market. So 
I think you would be right in suggesting we're looking to conduct further acquisitions, both in the US, in the US market and also in other parts of the world in the next 12 to 18 months. You built a facility in Delaware, another one in New Jersey, or is that the one I'm thinking of? No, we've got another one in New Jersey as well. So we have today eight um, discrete storage locations in and around New York, ranging from the Hamptons to Connecticut now. We have three in Newark, New Jersey. The most recent one was the old Star Ledger building, which basically we've um, gutted and now rebuilt um, with art storage and then uh, in Delaware, and then obviously the um, Brooklyn acquisition. So, so you have a very good sense from your client base of where the collectors are, right? You know, and, and obviously some of them are in multiple places. The people who yep. have houses in Connecticut and, uh, uh, as their full-time residents may also have a place in the Hamptons, uh, and the art moves either back and forth or gets uh, reorganized from time to time. Art goes on vacation sometimes with the, the owner. So there is the summer season out in the Hamptons where just before Memorial Day, um, we're relocating artworks, getting it ready for the summer. And then some, <coughs> some collectors will want to have a change on a weekly or a monthly basis to keep it fresh. There is then the, the Aspen market. So we're shipping um, out to Aspen during the winter months. There's the Palm Beach cycle. There is then the, uh, what I call the town and country cycle and then there's the um, yacht in the Mediterranean so um, I'm not suggesting that this is every collector it is a small minority but are moving art around to be with them um, partly because they enjoy their collection and that's great to see um, but also that is part of the dynamics of the global art market as well so you mentioned Aspen and, and uh, South Florida, and there are a number of um, companies uh, uh, that do storage in, in South, South Florida. Uh, uh, is there something out in Aspen? Is there a facility run by someone? No, uh, Aspen's really served out of Denver, so we work through uh, local partners there, or occasionally we'll send our own art handlers from, from New York. So in, in markets like uh, Dallas and Houston, are those places where the art is more in the home? I mean, is, it, is, it, is storage a function of either uh, collectors who have too much art or is it a, a function of co collectors who have multiple homes? Uh, yes and yes. It, it's a bit of everything. Um, <clears throat> so I think the way that we look at it is, and one of the advantages of having Iron Mountain as a backer in that they are a significant owner of real estate. And as they go through efficiencies within their business model, um, real estate becomes available and some of this real estate is in markets in which we would want to be and potentially it's in markets where we might struggle to have an immediate foothold so we can leverage an existing infrastructure. So there may be a building, if it's had data management in it, it's at a temperature and a relative humidity very close to what we would want for art storage. They've got fleet operations, they've got HR. There's a center that we can leverage. And so that's one of the projects we're invested in at the moment is looking at those markets, what you might call second tier markets, which would struggle to support a fully grown art storage and art logistics operation. But as I've already said, leveraging Iron Mountain, we can look at those markets in a totally different way. And that's quite exciting.
No, that actually makes a great deal of sense and not, uh, from the outside, something that would be uh, obvious uh, to viewers, but once you explain it, it, it really comes together. Uh, uh, more and more people seem to be interested in collecting art. Uh, it's really the infrastructure of getting them in, uh, 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 making them part of all, all of this, that seems to be the bottom. Well, the interesting aspect of this is since the acquisition, you know, just over a year ago, we have inquiries from Iron Mountain operations, both in the US, but further afield, with clients who are coming to them and saying, can you help us with art? Whether it be corporate collections or private collections. And so they're reaching out to us and saying, well, how do we do this? And so part of that process is helping them determine whether they have the right facilities, what it takes to provide this level of service at the top end. So we have a number of ongoing projects in the UK and elsewhere um, where we are working with Iron Mountain partners to provide that art storage. And so that, that, that's part of the acquisition that I, I hadn't really thought through and I don't think we at Crozier had thought through, but it's increasingly becoming more exciting that there are these opportunities that would actually fuel this development overseas, whether it is by greenfield organic startups or by acquisition. So what, what do you think is the next layer of the, this? That uh, uh, of moving into new mo markets or the bringing more people into uh, collecting art? I think it's across the board, it's both. And so the challenge is being able to do, to address each of these slightly different features of the market and the demand to assess which we should prioritize, which provides more of a strategic benefit to us in the longer term, but perhaps most importantly, really where we're going to be able to service clients either from start, because there's nobody doing it at the moment, or in a more cohesive way than they're currently being serviced. So the challenge is time and resources trying to juggle all of this at the same time, whilst making sure that really our core business and our core market you know, maintains its growth that we've seen over the last 10 years. But for me, having you know, worked in Europe, in Asia, um, in South America, it's, it's really interesting to be able to have this opportunity to look at these different um, demands and then working with a new set of colleagues, figure out how best to take advantage of them. Well, it certainly seems like the, the, the growth of the um, tangible asset market in the sense that the wealth advisors uh, are now uh, aware of the value of tangible assets, that they are increasingly being used as a store of value uh, for all sorts of macroeconomic uh, uh, reasons, Th that that would also drive a greater need for people to have someone on the ground who's, a, who's got a lot of experience dealing yeah. with those a a assets, not in their financial yeah. uh, uh, side, but in their physical uh, custodial side. Yeah, I mean, you touch on something there that yet again is something where even if we didn't want to look at it, which we do, we're being forced to address is whether um, car collections, whether wine, whether some of these other um, you know, personal tangible property classes go with art or whether they're good parallels, whether they're a separate 
sector or, or how you approach that in terms of what a client needs, whether the advisor to the client prefers to deal with one entity or a number of entities, and ultimately whether you know three plus three equals six or five and a half or seven and a half. So yet again, probably should come as no surprise that we're looking at all of that because we do have frequent requests to, for example, look after somebody's automobile. Well, once, once you've got a good relationship uh, with them, and, and that certainly follows what's been happening with the Freeports. The Freeports that were recently constructed were built with, on the assumption that it wouldn't be just be art or even specie or other things that are stored there, but wine and cars needed to be accommodated. Yeah. And yeah. it only, uh, as this spreads to, uh, to other places, yeah. not the international centers, but regional centers, it only well, makes more sense. Yeah, and I think the other, the other part of this which is interesting is how specialized we need to become in terms of providing those services. So you look at the sub, if you like, the sub-segment, which may be photographs. We do photographic storage at the moment. You know, we have a purpose-built vault for looking after photographs. Is that something that's needed in every location? Um, manuscripts, books. Um, Iron Mountain have a library and um, storage and transport service that they're developing in parallel to what we're doing. Um, Iron Mountain Entertainment um, Services, direct parallel to what we're doing in the entertainment industry, whether it's being looking after movie stars and props that they, under contract, become part of their deal when they make a film and then they have to be stored somewhere, or whether it's the digital masters, or whether it's the re-engineered copies of an original recording made on beeswax or whatever it was, you know, from 1911. So there are distinct parallels and ongoing conversations we have for all of these segments of collectible. And the interesting thing to me is that Iron Mountain have got more of a, um, an understanding of how clients want to monetize some of these collections than we have in the art space. And it may well be that we don't have a role in the art space, but we certainly want to understand, if we do, what it looks like in terms of providing a platform for our clients to do something else with their art. Well, I think you have finally proved that the art storage business isn't quite as boring as people <laughs> think it is. Well, I've always said it has to be a little geeky, um, but it's, it's, uh, there are different components to it, that's it, for sure. Ge geeky, yes, but uh, uh, certainly <laughs> on trend. Yeah, uh, things yeah. go forward. Uh, uh, Simon, I can't thank you enough for doing this. Uh -huh. Thanks, Marin. Really enjoyed it. Thank you for listening to the Artelligence Podcast. Visit us at artmarketmonitor.com. 